What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on John Smothers from Acrew Capital. Acrew is a multi-strategy fund focused on modernizing security and infrastructure, rebuilding financial services, reimagining the future of work, and better connecting data sets and activated communities. Within his role, John focuses on sourcing pre-seed companies to match the fund's thesis. In his talk, we discuss the opportunity to build businesses on top of existing online communities, the irony of relying on pattern matching when investing in the future potential of companies, and how venture is becoming a hospitality business. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, right. welcome to the Confluence Podcast. We got the homie John in here from A-Crew, and uh, we're excited to kick things off. I actually just had a really refreshing conversation with him uh, about a week ago, and have been talking about a lot of great things that he's up to. This is a great time for, for him to just stun on y'all, basically. Not at all. You're way too kind. <laughs> but yeah, so man, how about to get us started? You hit us with two minutes or, or less of the, the the John elevator pitch or story or background because you've done some very impressive things. Oh, well, thanks, man. And really appreciate you having me on. I guess the best way to kick it off would just be all the way at the beginning. I was basically raised in Baltimore, outside of Baltimore in Baltimore County. So I spent the formative years of my life basically exploring Baltimore and DC metro areas, which ended up being really pivotal for me. I just loved the learning opportunities, went to attend. I was homeschooled, I guess that's another thing to say. I had the opportunity to take classes at a lot of the local institutions and colleges while in high school there. And Baltimore really has this really robust educational ecosystem. I got to take music classes down at, you know, Hopkins, but within their basically music department, I got to take poetry classes at Goucher, which is a liberal arts college outside of Towson, Maryland. And I really afford all these opportunities to my mom, who made sure I had exposure to experiential learning. Ended up leaving Baltimore, not too far away, to the University of Delaware for college. And I'd like to say I had it figured out when I went to Delaware, like everything I wanted to do. But in reality, I didn't have a clue until about end of sophomore year where I was listening to a podcast. It was uh, This Week in Startups with Chris Saka talking about lowercase capital. And it intrigued me. I had never, I was in the business school and I had never heard a financier um, talk about their mission statement so clearly as being their driving force for everything they did. And that really inspired me. Decided to look into venture. I was really fortunate. I had a brother that was a founder in New York at the time, eight years older than I was. So again, that was just luck of the draw there. Started interning just through sending some cold emails to a handful of venture firms and then pursued venture full-time after graduating and through a series of serendipitous events and uh, a mixture of luck ended up landing at A-Crew a couple years out of college and work on their investment team focused on pre-seed and seed stage. That's kind of me in a nutshell and happy to dive into any of those areas in depth. Yeah, I feel like you cut yourself so short on that one, but 
I'll let you I'll let you do a quick overview of A Crew and, and the team and what you all are working on from the fund and the history and the, the DCF fund. And then I want to get back into your upbringing and before we continue. Awesome. Sounds good. Yes, it, that sounds awesome. Yeah, so A Crew, uh, we're relatively new in name, but while the five founding partners have really been working together for quite some time. So we were founded in 2019. First fund was about $268 million. We're just starting on our second fund as well as our growth fund. And while we're relatively new in name and brand, the five founding partners have really been working together previously at a prior firm called Aspect since about 2014. And then prior to that, one of our founding partners, Teresa Gao, spent quite a while at a firm called Excel and was a managing general partner there. We're new in name, not necessarily new with our core founding team. I joined the team uh, at the beginning of this year. I've been with the team for about five months now. Uh, I tend to focus on two specific of our thesis thesis areas. Our core fund is really seed through series B. And then we have a growth stage fund, which I'll talk about in a second. We're very thesis driven and we're team driven. While we like our finance double entendres, A crew, A crew, but we really mean it. Founders really thought about naming the firm A crew because we invest as a team. Decisions are made as a team. We meet companies as a team and we make decisions as a team. That's at the core of our ethos and our mission. And then our thesis areas are really where we spend our time. Five areas real quickly, we call security and infrastructure modernized which is basically all things related to cybersecurity and infrastructure software, so dev tools and DevOps. We call our fintech thesis financial services rebuilt, so things at the application and infrastructure layer in the financial services ecosystem. Work reimagined, which is our future of work thesis around all things really bottoms up software and enterprise software, especially now with these new remote and hybrid workforces, the way that people are communicating and working together is changing. And we want to back a lot of software companies at the early stages that are really enabling that type of work. And then the other two areas are what we call data interconnect, which are really data arbiters uh, that are emerging to help handle all the different data that's being created in today's society. And then the area I spend the most time in, which is our consumer internet thesis, which we call um, community activated, which embodies everything from marketplaces to vertical social networks to linear commerce and really all things where communities are aggregating online, people are talking to one another, where people are consuming. And we think that there's this real opportunity to, to build businesses on top of authentic communities. But a crew core fund or early stage fund in a nutshell. Our other core focus is our DCF fund. So we're two pronged. We have the early stage fund and our A-Crew DCF fund, which is our growth stage vehicle. It's called Diversified Capital Fund. Again, we love our financial uh, double entendre names here at A-Crew. And in reality, this is spun up to, to basically diversify the leadership and boards of growth stage companies. So usually think Series C plus companies all the way up to pre-IPO companies, and then also help diversify their cap tables. The fund is made up of really diverse LP, and then we also have a really diverse mix of investors on our team. And then we also, we don't, we're a participatory fund, so the growth stage fund invests predominantly five to $15 million checks. So we don't lead growth stage rounds. Um, we don't take board seats from the standpoint of one of our team members joining the board, uh, which is, you know, a little non-traditional for most growth stage funds. But what we do um, is help entrepreneurs diversify their leadership teams when they're hiring uh, execs and diversify when it comes to adding independent board members, giving our networks. That's our growth stage fund in a nutshell and a crew in a quick summary. Love it, bro. Love it, bro. It's, since you all launched and before that with the team that you all have put together, it's been nothing with respect across the valley. So good job landing there, building there and taking a lead on some really cool things there you down to maybe talk a little bit about 
the things you left out earlier, starting companies and funds or whatnot. I would I would love to get more into the weeds on that. Definitely, yeah. Happy to chat about that. And all the credit to A Crew goes to the rest of the team. All of this was in the works before I joined. So I'm just fortunate to be able to build alongside them. And it's been really cool. It's always nice when kind of vision and values match when you join a firm. So uh, to go throw it back prior to A Crew, um, it was about two and a half years where I spent a hybrid role between investing. Um, and building companies. So I should say coming out of the University of Delaware, I was very fortunate where I was applying to roles in venture, all early stage funds. And I was fortunate to get an entry level role, um, an offer at Kpor Capital. So their mission and ethos really aligned with what I wanted to do. I absolutely loved the team there. There was something internal that was just, I was just itching to build something that had this entrepreneurial energy. And I like to say, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was super naive, which was super helpful at the time. In hindsight, I like to say, if I knew what I didn't know or at the time, I probably wouldn't have tried to do what I did. So I'm glad I was naive in that sense. I decided instead of taking this role at Cape Four Capital, maybe I can raise my own micro fund, a small angel fund of my own. I targeted and went out to raise a $3 million fund. I was very fortunate. I like to say this is my biggest learning experience, but it was also a failure in the same light, was went out to raise $3 million, did not know how difficult it would be to raise $3 million. Was very fortunate to get uh, a few friends and a few acquaintances and a couple of folks like Chris and Crystal Saka to commit to the fund. But when it was all said and done, I only had about 500K in firm commitment of the $3 million, which wasn't enough to execute basically my portfolio construction and my strategy I had set out for, for the fund. And I've been coming up on, I gave myself about 10 months of runway uh, before I needed to have a full-time job so I could basically feed and clothe myself and live as a human being. I needed a salary at that point. And this is where I say I was naive to think I could raise a first-time fund in under a year. And I was very fortunate where at the end of those 10 months, I was sitting down with a small LP in the fund. He had been a finance professor of mine at the University of Delaware. And he said, hey, John, I know you haven't raised enough to go full time on this thing. Um, I believe in you as an investor, uh, but I also think you have some interesting ideas when it comes to, to commerce and brand building. Would you want to come work with me and build some brands internally within his companies? And to paint some context, his day job uh, was as an entrepreneur. He was an adjunct professor in finance at the University of Delaware, but all of his companies were adjacent to e-commerce. And a 3PL company, uh, basically a third-party logistics company that did the fulfillment for uh, small to medium-sized e-commerce brands. He owned a Corrugated box manufacturing company. Uh, he owned uh, some trucking uh, companies as well, all in the B2B space, lower margin, but he was seeing some of his best customers in the 3PL business do quite well. So he wanted to get into the B2C side and start selling his own product. So worked with him and a team of others over the course of a year, and we were very fortunate to build some niche brands. I even struggle to use the word brand because in reality, they were more arbitrage stores where we saw opportunity and specific niche segments. And then we basically took that opportunity and, and built a mini brand in that space. Bootstrapped that company to about $2 million in realized revenue in less than 10 months. So on the 10 month horizon again, and then about a year into it, those brands were on track to do uh, about $10 million a year. And while it was a great learning opportunity, I went from being an early stage investor to being a growth marketer. Uh, and it was truly enlightening to see what growth marketers do, but I was spending all my time as a performance-based marketer living in the Facebook and Google ad platforms, uh, and it just wasn't fulfilling. So it went from meeting with early stage founders and being a tiny piece of manifesting a really big um, idea into reality to basically serving ads on Facebook. So decided that I was going to pivot back into venture and in essence joined a crew, I guess, 
few months after after leaving that company it was called Greenville Studios. We were a e-commerce brand studio and been very fortunate, haven't looked back since. So now I get to basically be a small part of the early stage and early journeys of, of other entrepreneurs uh, and do what I really set out to do two and a half, three years ago upon leaving school. That was the interim between leaving school and a crew. There was, I guess I call it like a finding myself period where I found what I didn't want to do, which helped me find what I truly wanted to do. Rob, that's fire. I've, I've not met many people in the space at all. Like I think this year, maybe you're starting to see a lot of younger folks try to do it on their own. And maybe before I graduated or before when I was just getting started in VC, I maybe heard of one other person who went down that path. And I got to commend you. I don't even know how you decide, like how you ended up with this, the LP base that you did. So that's fine. I appreciate that. To be honest, if I look back, probably some of the emails I sent were cringeworthy, but I think the art of the cold email and being earnest and authentic really helped. And to be honest, there was a level of luck. And I will say I didn't get there to from the standpoint of I wasn't successful in raising um, the full fund. So I ended up truthfully giving back LP capital to all the outside LPs. And I ended up investing small angel checks with one of the LPs I was close friends with. And then obviously working closely with the guy, his name was Peter, who was my professor. So working with him building company, but it was definitely at the time felt like a lot of failure that fund was called Dimension. And while we've made some investments that have proven to go on and do quite well, time will tell how well I'm very proud of the teams we backed and the works we did there early on. It definitely felt like failure not being able to get to close. But I think all of that was helpful now in giving me context of how hard it is to, to build something from, from relatively nothing. And it gives me that much more respect and empathy, I think, for the founders I back personally and through a crew because it's quite difficult to manifest something from nothing. So yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I would say not much about your path is traditional. I'd also say that you've intentionally taken non-traditional paths. Like most people would never turn down a venture capital entry-level job out of college and still end up basically running their own thing at a super sick shop. And I think that same thing applies for like you succeeding as an entrepreneur. And you wrote some cool pieces. One that I remember you wrote is called Distance Travel. And that piece is about just not being traditional or just the traditional path is not actually like the best way. Basically kind of just poo-pooing on pattern matching. Yeah. Can you share your thoughts on why pattern matching is broken? Yeah. So I guess when I originally came into venture, a lot of the podcasts I listened to, not all, but many of them, um, the basically established VCs or investors would talk about this concept of pattern matching and basically looking for a specific type of pedigree or looking for a specific type of background. And I thought, quite frankly, that overlooked uh, a large swath of potential um, and current entrepreneurs that are just as viable to build venture-backed businesses, but that just don't fit the traditional pattern that venture in the past has, has matched to. So I wanted to think of this new framework of what I consider distance traveled. Um, and I'm fortunate because, you know, if I look at I wrote the piece originally based off the idea of actually my mom, who was born in basically segregated Richmond, Virginia, and all the different hurdles that she had to go through as a child and young adult to get to where she was. And if people didn't actually see how far she had come from where she had started, people can, in essence, 
underestimate and undervalue folks if you don't fully understand their story and their journey. So I wrote this piece based off of that. I love to use the example. There's these three founders who are absolutely incredible. They're founders of this company called Buy Me a Coffee. They serve creators They're in the creator economy space. You can think of them as a much more robust and much more creator-friendly Patreon of sorts. Um, they don't come from traditional backgrounds, born in India, um, don't have traditional degrees. All of them are basically self-taught designers and software engineers. Um, have built products to basically allow themselves to live. So they're creators themselves, um, move themselves from India to London to transition to San Francisco. Um, and all before they ever raised a dime, uh, they had tens of thousands of creators transacting and use their platform. Now they have hundreds of thousands of creators and process millions in payments and they're doing quite well, uh, but they don't have the traditional pedigree. But when you think about the distance that they've traveled so early on in life, these folks being in their, their 20s and what they've built, I think that's a much better signal for are these founders going to build something massive and really impactful rather than just what institutions they attended or what big tech companies or fan companies they've worked for. Not to put down those credentials, they have their place, but saying that it's not the only way that we should be analyzing founders. And I think right now, if you look at who gets the most funding, they go to rather traditional stereotypical founders that have certain institutions and certain credentials. And I think that's quite frankly, missing out on quite a lot of innovation that's out there. Totally agreed. I also think that applies to pattern matching in regards to business models and structures and themes and waves of innovation or natural cyclicality across verticals. I think that a lot of us are consistently looking at what happens in one space and then looking at how that can happen in another or what's happened in the past. And while that's like super valuable, I think it's also incredibly valuable that we maybe take that and say like, how could this be completely flipped? Or like, why haven't I ever seen this? And what could it become? The same way with people. So thank you for putting that piece out. We're definitely going to include that one in the newsletter to make sure that people can check it out. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I think the, the best summary, and I'm definitely misquoting a rough quote, it was Finn Barnes, who's a board partner at First Round. When he was asked about pattern matching, he basically said pattern matching is looking in the past when venture you're supposed to be looking forward. So if you're pattern matching for historical events and historical successes, you're going to miss out on what's going to happen in the future. So in reality, I think VCs would be better off um, more thinking about what could go and what's changed rather than what's happened in the past successfully and then trying to rest on old laurels for their successes. Yo, it's so funny. So I recently started working with this huge family office as like a part-time investment professional, whatever you want to call it, as I build out my companies and build out Confluence Fund. And I recently got to LP, one of the, I call them like top five, top 10 early stage managers. And they have literally no, no real strategy as to how they're doing this. But when we asked them, like, we're like, well, they're not going to give us a strategy. Can you at least like break down like five of your investments? And that's all he focused on. He goes on these tangents about if this happened, then maybe these three things can happen. And if these three things happen from this one or this one, these six things could happen. And if you look at those, if any of those work out, then this could be an X billion dollar company in less than this time. And that's how his thought structure was in every single thing. Of course, he had to protect for some downside, but luckily for this person, he's investing pre-seed to series seed. And like he's investing in a very large clip. But the way that they get deal flow and the way that they actually perceive that deal flow was one of the most refreshing conversations I've had. And then when you look at their return, it's clear that breaking the mold of pattern matching is what needs to be done. And what's even crazier is like, we intentionally looked at their deals across 
different verticals. And uh, the takeaways that they were coming up with just naturally by thinking about what could go was very similar to what people, like if you look at like a pattern matching VC writing down a thesis based on X facts, this investor knew nothing about these areas other than like the initial due diligence that they'd done on the spaces, like probably in a week and a half to two weeks span, given the, the speed at which people make deals do happen this, at this uh, time in, in our industry. It's like same types of conclusions, but willing to take bigger bets and over two or three funds, they've actually outperformed many of their sector specific peers in their, in their given verticals. So. Yeah, no, I'm, we might chat about this later. I know as a potential prompt, but talking about the difference between pre-seed and seed stage venture uh, versus series A and later, basically institutional investing and the difference there predominantly being what you're underwriting and every VC firm, every individual at a VC firm, I think will have different types of risks that they enjoy underwriting and then things that they're not comfortable. Uh, and for me, I think at the seed stage, the biggest thing is people, people market, uh, and then idea afterwards, but really you're backing the individual first and foremost. Uh, and that's a very different type of investing than backing a growth stage company. Uh, when you're modeling out specific returns, you have more of an analytical data uh, analyst perspective, and you're using really two different sides of your brain. So they require, I think, different types of individuals and both have an immense amount of respect for, but I think what you're talking about is at this pre-seed and seed stage, if people have these more traditional pattern recognition, you'll call it, they use the, those types of traditional models, they're going to miss out on backing the people and the individuals that are going to create the next wave of returns in this industry. Yeah, it definitely resonates. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We definitely should get into, into the deltas there. Okay, we're going to stick to the script. So we're going to get back to that before you ask me and Clay questions. Tell me why venture capital should be more like hospitality instead of more being served. Yeah, lo love this question. So deeply believe that venture is a hospitality business and that I would just build one step upon um, those who have talked about it as a service business. I absolutely agree with them. I would just take a, a slight step further. Uh, and I will say that probably my favorite business book ever written is Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. So anybody listening will probably know what my perspective is based off of that. Uh, but I think there's this difference that not all DC firms have picked up yet and many of the best to survive will, where it's not just a service business. And I would define service the exact same way that Danny Meyer would, which is services, basically what you do for your customers. So uh, if you're a venture firm, it would be how quickly you respond. It would be basically, do you wire the money when you say you're going to wire the money? All the things that are baseline that are just required to be in the mix of, of good firms or decent firms. Hospitality is how you make somebody feel while you're providing that service to them. Uh, and that takes a whole new level of EQ and empathy and authenticity. Uh, and quite frankly, this alignment of interest to know that even I might be, I'm obviously looking out for my returns and our LPs returns, et cetera, that I'm in line with the founder and I'm going to take care of the founder first and foremost, because you are my customer. And I want to make sure that at every step in the journey that we're taking care of you. Uh, and that's a little bit different. So that requires a, a deeper level of, of empathy and you know, emotional intelligence um, that I think is missing in venture today where it's very transactional. Um, it's very much I invest in you. And then a lot of the time there's a board role and then there's governments and it doesn't always feel um, as though, and I think most founders would agree that oftentimes they're protecting themselves 
and their interest from their invest and that their investors are people that they have to manage rather than people that they're partners with. So when I think of venture as a hospitality business, I think of it in tandem as how do you make this relationship a partnership relationship, not just a purely transactional relationship. Um, and that requires a lot of ongoing work because relationship building is work and to do it really well, it shouldn't feel transactional. It feel like this transformational thing that hopefully helps the company and betters both of the individuals on both sides of the table. For me, I think of hospitality and venture as hand in hand. It's not one without the other. To be a great investor, I really think you have to embody great hospitality, especially to have longevity, because if you're, we, this business is 10, 15, 20 year time horizons to build really meaningful and impactful companies. And to do that over a prolonged period of time, um, I don't think VC should be self-actualizing through the companies they invest in or, or what they've done. This is another piece to this, but to really have this you know, hospital relationship, it should be based off of, I'm doing what's right for you because I feel like I want to do what's right for you, not because I want this company to be successful so I can then go say I've been an investor in this company. Um, that's getting at another level where one thing in venture we could do with less of is actualizing through our careers and through our jobs and separating who you are and the relationships you have from your career. Uh, and I think that would actually yield greater and better results in the long term. But that's a slightly different conversation. Yeah, I, I feel very much so similarly. I would argue that like for myself, I think I've always been like a great investor or like good enough investor relative to my age. But the separation uh, or benefit that I've always tried to bring to the table is like being that person who lets other people be themselves and makes them feel welcome and happy and supported. And I never thought about it as hospitality. And, and my hope is that in you putting out these pieces and like having this spread across our community through the newsletter and podcasts and just continue to get bigger and bigger as yourself, that this does become more of the industry standard. It seems like it should be table stakes at this point, but it's only become relevant over the last two years and it's been a best kept secret amongst the top 20, 30 firms for a long time. Yeah. Thank no, you. I completely agree. And I, I think even though you haven't thought about it as hospitality, at the end of the day, it's, it's empathy. So how are you making the other people, the other person on the other side of whatever that table is, whether it's a co-investor, friend, entrepreneur you're investing in, how are you making them feel? And to think about that, really, ideally, everybody just thinks about it off the bat. That's how everybody comes into the world, with it, hopefully, and just start thinking about, oh, how do my actions impact somebody else? Is this going to impact them negatively or positively? Um, and thinking deeply about that before having a conversation or before doing, you know, or committing an action uh, that'll have, you know, an effect on another individual. At the end of the day, I think what I'm saying through the piece is just more people would be nice if they, you know, led with empathy uh, and thoughtfulness, which I think you've done a tremendous job of. So, yeah. I appreciate it, fam. Yeah. Same with you. And Clay as well, I, I don't think that this could have existed without us thinking that way. How about we dive into the point that you rose earlier today surrounding the difference between pre-seed slash seed stage and institutional a series A plus investing? Yeah, so this is actually interesting because I saw Paul Graham post something about this uh, a week or two ago and how people often confuse him as a VC and call him a venture capitalist and he considers himself a seed stage investor and separates the two as two different career paths and almost two different asset classes. And I, I tend to agree with him where there's, I'll call it seed stage all encompassing. I definitely believe that seed is a phase. So all things at the earliest stages of company formation and then series A and later institutional investing. 
and we'll call that post-product market fit where um, you have something that's working and you're raising to speed up growth. Uh, and at that point, uh, it becomes a slightly different business. I think when you're an institutional investor at Series A+, plus, or especially at Series B+, plus, you're really investing based off of an imperfect data set, but a data set that is available. So you usually have some sort of data room. You have you know everything from retention to revenue metrics to growth rate that you can all look at. And it's not going to be perfect data, but you can go through it uh, and parse through it and make a decision based off of that. So it's not just a decision based off of the founding team, the market, the conceptual idea and their execution to date. It's really based off of what they have and the material uh, and whether that's enough for you. More of a, a data analyst role, I'd say. And that's so there's really great analytical investor minds that operate really well at this stage. And then I'd say at the seed stage, the earliest stage, it's very much so people-driven. So you're investing in people and your ability to, to suss out talent. So it's almost like a talent scout. And for me, the way I work and operate, I much prefer to be in the earliest category of investors. Uh, you're investing before, often there's a lot of other believers. You're not necessarily competing for rounds. You're more trying to showcase why you believe in the founder and hope that the founder will give you a seat at the table, but usually investing before uh, others uh, believe. So being an early believer is really compelling um, and really backing talent above all else and people above all else. And it's deeply relationship driven and it's driven by a belief in the individual. While at the later stage, it's, we'll call it much more, it's much more pure finance. Uh, especially at the growth stage. So growth stage investors are looking for a two to four X return. They have the information at hand about the company. They go through the data room. They can look at market context and be, okay, this is the multiples that they're going for in the public markets. This is what we're paying for. This is what we projected we'll get to in two to three years. Um, if they get to an IPO and do we want to underwrite this company or not at that stage? So it's not necessarily about the people as much as it is about, can we see a two to three X return within the specific time horizon? There's nothing wrong with that, but it's a very different type of investing. Uh, and I, I like to say that I think right now everything's merging together and everything's being conflated. It's the same skill set too, uh, especially as multi-stage firms, hedge funds, et cetera, go earlier stage. Everybody's saying to be a great growth stage investor, you have to have an early stage, basically a hypothesis or thesis. To be a great early stage investor, you have to have this growth stage experience. And I think the two are separate. And I think right now they're just merging together given the frothiness. Agreed. It's interesting because I spent the vast majority of my career doing C through Series C investing. And I've always felt that you're right in regards to like at the, at the call it A to, to C plus, you're very much so starting to make highly quantitative assessments on your deals. You have the data, so you might as well do the work. But one thing that I, what I like is that this idea of like people picking at the early stage. I think that's 100% spot on. But I also think that it's still somewhat a numerical game, but it's a different kind of numerical game when you're playing at the C stage. So it's like, how can you get the highest volume of call it B plus to A plus people in your portfolio and continuously do that and make sure you meet the needs of seeing them. That's how we've designed our strategy. And when I look at some of the the best folks in the game, like you, you start to see the volume of their deals, so except like a few exceptions. I could probably name drop like five or six where I'm just like, how? <laughs> but that I, I think the, the industry will move into it. It's what you've seen for a lot of the larger stage funds. Like you're seeing multi-billion dollar funds or 
big name series ABC funds create these large seed practices. Like arguably you can say maybe even in the crew, I think you all, like you are focusing on earlier stage things as well. And I'm curious as to how you look at the, the construct or volume that you need to hit of those high quality folks. Yeah, so at A Crew, so we have two, obviously, two funds uh, and two core strategies, which are the early stage seed and Series A being the core focus with some Series B falling into that fund, and then the growth stage fund. So the growth stage fund is made up of participatory checks, five to $15 million checks, and the fund is roughly $300 million. And then you can basically do the rough math off of portfolio construction there. Uh, and there's really no reserves for that fund given um, we're investing at kind of the pre-IPO stage. So the main thing is to invest in a decent number of really high quality growth stage companies and get into really the best, you know, technology and software companies leading up to their IPOs. And then on the early stage fund, we take a fairly concentrated approach where the majority, we operate in three, three core modes. We have collaboration, we have a co-lead, and then we have a lead check. So at the, we'll call it Series A and Series B, we really love to play a co-lead or lead investor role where we write anywhere from a few million dollar check really to about a $12 million check. And then as a collaborative collaborator, we write checks anywhere really from about a million to a few million in seed uh, and Series A rounds. So for us, it's not necessarily about ownership. It really isn't about ownership at all. Uh, we've designed the fund in a way, and I really give full credit to the founders of the fund who obviously built the firm to make it not about um, a specific check size or a specific ownership target. It's very much so about being involved with the right entrepreneurs and the right founders at this pivotal stage and hoping to earn uh, a seat around the table. So for us, that means if we invest at the seat and there's only a million dollar allocation out of a two or $3 million round and we're a collaborator there, that's wonderful. We'll take that opportunity and we'll hope to earn a right uh, to participate if it makes sense in the Series A. Same thing said for the Series A to the Series B. And then now that we have DCF, that if we invest at the Series A or Series B as an entry point, we hope to earn a right in future growth stage rounds out of DCF. So. Um, we've designed the firm to be very collaborative. We love to lead and co-lead, especially in our core areas of operation. Uh, that being said, it's absolutely not a requirement. That flexibility has allowed us to get into some really amazing companies. And it's, I think it's necessary in this environment to basically fit the investment and tailor the investment to the entrepreneur. And not only is it necessary from a competitive standpoint of competing with other firms, but also I think it's better not to compete to the best way is to be collaborative is the best thing for the entrepreneur. Um, and it ends up working out well for our firm. So yeah, that's us in a nutshell. Gotcha. Gotcha. It was clearly working and um, I dig it. You down to either hop into our quick fire or before that get out any questions you might have for me and clay i'm, I'm definitely going to let clay answer these first because we as i say every episode we miss his voice yeah no like i no real questions right now just excited for the quick fire and down to just jam afterwards as well cool I'll hop in so john we do these at the end we've got five questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less we're not great at actually hitting that guardrail but we try to put it in place first one we've got is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice recommendation that's bad advice probably the universal that you should go to a, a fang company get a pm role or just look for brand right out of college that's not 
generally all bad advice all the time, but I think universally it's given out and I don't agree with that. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I feel like that's a sourcing strategy of just like start filtering for people that are two or three years into those PM roles at fan companies and just expect them to leave soon and start their own. But yeah, I, I totally agree. Next question we've got in the last year, what new belief behavior habit has most improved your life? Last year, probably just the belief that there's this level of abundance versus having an abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset. And we can all win together and have this perspective that it's not zero sum uh, and that life is better lived with others. So yeah, that's probably what's helped. And especially in COVID, having this realization and internalization that community is, is deeply necessary. Totally agree. Love it again. We had our guest last week, we were talking about collaboration and like using that as a way to get into deals, being friendly with other investors. I think it plays into that same idea of abundance mindset, expanding the pie rather than splitting up the existing slices. Next one, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? This is a great question. I guess the fact that it can feel very transactional at times. And I think the best way to practice it is really in a collaborative way, team first and team forward. Uh, And it would just be nice if the industry felt more like that. And I think we're making a shift. I see more firms moving towards a very collaborative approach, but it can still feel very competitive and also very transactional at times. Yeah, I feel like it's more collaborative the farther upstream you go. Like everybody that invested the pre-seed, seed, like angels, they seem more than happy to share their deal flow, figure out ways to work together. It's a little bit different, a little bit more cutthroat at the A and B, but that's just my experience. Could be wrong. Okay, so got two more here. Next one, a lot of our audience used more principal and below. So think principal associate analyst. What's your best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? I would say this is super general and probably not that helpful, but just be yourself. I truly believe there's only one of of each of you and each individual person has their own super strengths. I plagiarize and pull from Steve Jobs' commencement speech that he gave. There's a lot of people that'll push you to conform to the dogma of the world and their individual desires for you and who they want you to be. And it's easy to see the path of how to become what other people want you to become. But in reality, there's only one of you. You know your super strengths better than anybody else. Um, So lean into those and trust and have that'll take you to where you want to go. Totally agree. The last one here, who's a mentor of yours that you'd want to give credit to right now? So many people, but the two that are almost always top of mind. One would be Satya over at Homebrew. Um, I can't put into words how appreciative I am for him. Um, And he'll never admit to it, but he is instrumental um, in helping so many people break into this industry. And he moves silently, but he's always giving back. So massive shout out to him. And the other is one of my bosses, Teresa at A-Crew. Not only is Teresa just an incredible investor, but she proves that you can be kind, empathetic, thoughtful, have a very long and incredible career in this industry and always lead with kindness. And that's been inspirational ever since I found out who she was. And I feel very fortunate to, to get to work with her. Those would be the two people I want to call out. Love it. Cool. That is all the questions for me. I'm not sure if Tyler has anything else he'd like to add in there yes 
who do you want to see on this podcast and or in the Confluence community? Okay, this is another great question. So I haven't looked through your records of who's been on the podcast yet. So if I'm naming people that have already been on it, let me know. Brittany over at CRV, JC Jean-Claude over at XYZ, Graham over at GGV, and I could honestly go on and on for people. Justine over at, what is it? Is it Playground Global? I hope I got a firm right there. Yeah, like, let me, we can talk offline too. I got a long list of awesome folks. Yo, I need to call Jean-Claude to get him on here. Brittany would be dope. And the other two as well would be super dope. So if you're down to facilitate intro for any of those, or just we can try to get them in. Yeah. So... Look, man, let's, I guess we could stop here in regards to the podcast. Thanks so much for, for doing this with us. You're dope. And it's family energy, so we we, we happy to have you. Yeah, hopefully it comes out all right. Appreciate you having me on. Rub. Huge thanks again to John for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with John, we've linked his social info within the description below. You can also find his contact info within the directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us please feel free to reach out directly either to tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at hope to hear from you all soon